This is a special call to action to our listeners to financially support this podcast and spread awareness of the Native Plants Dialogue through exclusive Plant Native Nebraska merch at plant-native-nebraska.myspreadshop.com. Wear our designs in your best effort to convert your friends and neighbors, or just simply look cool. Thank you for your continued support in our quest to help Nebraska plant native. Hello, and welcome to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Barlman. If you are new to tuning in, this show is for native plant enthusiasts, aspiring gardeners, suburban homeowners, growers, and thinkers anxious to learn more about growing Native American plants and creating habitat for wildlife. If this sounds like you, you've come to the right place. In today's episode, fall in love with native plants. We go over why not to neglect the three-season garden and the many native perennials and grasses you can incorporate for full interest. We're glad you're here. Thanks for listening. So today we're talking about native plants for fall, because in the end game, when we plant native gardens, we are thinking about all three, if not four seasons. There are lots and lots of plants to make you love fall even more than you love your pumpkin spice lattes. If you haven't already, now is a good time to get caught up on our old episodes, such as our Native Edible Plant series with Bob Henriksen, or our very first episode, What Are Native Plants Anyway? Also, if you are new to tuning in, we provide extensive show notes on each episode, So if you hear a bit about a plant you like, you should be able to find more by reading through. We also provide extensive resources if you scroll all the way down to the bottom. I thought it would be fun today to add in some descriptive insect info I gleaned from Heather Holmes' Pollinators of Native Plants book. This is an amazing book that sat on my shelf a while because I've not been able to sit down and just read, but I'm glad I got around to it and that I can share some of that magic with you. So stay tuned, because she's with us late October on the ecological topic of soft landings. But without further ado, what are some native wildflowers we can utilize for fall blooms and further convince our neighbors that native plants aren't ugly? We have plants from the aster family. And if you haven't already grown asters in your garden, you're missing out. And you're probably going to plant one and end up wanting every single aster that has ever seen the sun since the beginning of time. Because they are amazing, amazing plants. The first aster we can talk about that's a native plant to the Midwest is New England aster. Even though it has the name New England, it is still native to the Midwest. And this is a great plant for different insect species. So come one, come all, bees, butterflies, and moths. It caters to them all. It's also the host plant for the pearl crescent butterfly. It caters to a specialist insect, the Andrina mining bee. Now, if you haven't already heard of specialist insects, they have a very particular relationship 
with a certain kind of plant. These are not generalist species that are open-minded when it comes to garden variety plants. These are very, very picky eaters and very, very particular about the kinds of plants that they frequent. So if you see something marked as catering to a specialist species, it's definitely a very important plant to have ecologically. New England asters are also a nectar source for different insects, small carpenter bees, leafcutter bees, bumblebees, green sweat bees. These are just bees. They also provide nectar for different kinds of moths, buckeye and crescent butterflies, even nectar and pollen for cirifid flies and soldier beetles. You get the idea. This is a plant that provides a buffet for insects. But also when you take a look at the picture of New England aster, or if you already have seen it growing in a garden somewhere, you're also going to know and be able to see this beautiful color, this nice tall aster. It'll be perfect in a moist area of your garden. If you've got a sunken depression somewhere that collects a little bit more water after it rains, it'll be very happy there. Heath aster. Heath aster is another great plant. I don't think it was featured in Heather Holmes' Pollinators of Native Plants book. But heath aster is great because if it's growing in an area where it doesn't have a lot of competition from other tall plants, it's kind of on a corner all by itself, it's going to be a low-growing, snowy blanket and bloom come fall time. Just absolutely fantastic. You won't find much that looks better than heath aster. Um, if it is crowded around with other tall plants and it's kind of mimicking that sort of prairie environment, it will be much, much taller. So it'll go from being like low growing and maybe a foot tall max to three feet tall. It looks like a completely different plant. It will basically look, when it's in bloom, it'll look like snowy branches reaching up through your garden. Um, so two completely different growing types for the same kind of plant. But Heath Aster is super awesome. It's a long lived aster. It's great for tough, dry areas like a health strip garden or other dry, sunny places. You don't have much luck getting other things to grow. Another great aster. I mean, they're all great. Silky aster is one of my favorite asters. It looks very delicate. It grows around things. It's very wispy and ethereal. It's, it's shorter, so it only grows up to about a foot and a half. This is a good filler plant for your garden. It's kind of happy to be anywhere. And if you find a spot where it's super, super happy, you're going to see it. You're going to see it working its way around and popping up nearby. Heartleaf Aster. This one's a great one for a deep shade area. If you've got one where you're like, what do I grow here? What's going to tolerate deep shade? Heartleaf Aster, hands down. One of the better plants you can put there. It has heart-shaped leaves, true to its name. It's got beautiful dusky periwinkle flowers. It's got a growth habit of up to three feet and it likes to show up everywhere and believe me you will let it. Smooth blue aster, another great aster, looks bluish purple. It's got bluish green leaves. Its growth habit is shrubby but open. It's a late season nectar forage plant which is awesome especially if you are a monarch fan and you are trying to help the monarchs in their quest to survive 
It is a great plant to use for them. It is actually a host plant for crescent butterflies. Sky blue aster, another pale purple aster. It's very similar to smooth blue aster. Its growth habit is up to three feet. So if you want to experiment with asters and compare them to each other, sky blue, smooth blue, this would be a good one for you to plant close to each other so you can kind of note the differences. Aromatic aster, true to its name, uh, another pale purple aster. It grows up to two feet. And it's a popular one the rabbits don't seem to eat. This is a nice uh, shrubby aster. It's great if you've got room for it. You're going to need about three, four feet of room. They should have a new slogan saying, fall is for asters instead of fall is for planting. Because asters, I just, I've got pretty much, pretty much every native one now in my garden somewhere. And they are all just so amazing. Tall bone set. So we're kind of changing gears here. This is a taller plant. It's, it's very, very shrubby. And its, its growth habit is up to five feet. Mine is in my dry, sunny front garden, and it grows up to five feet tall there for sure, maybe even six feet. This plant, it's got tight clustered fireworks of white, stout. It doesn't need much support. It's very dense. This is kind of, um, I guess, what you could classify as an anchor plant. It is definitely a a framework type of plant. It gives a lot of structure to the garden. It's just great in the middle of a garden where height isn't an issue and other things can grow around it and show off their colors with this backdrop of green and white. So it's really amazing. Sunflowers. So we've got the sunflower family. Maximilian sunflowers are a larval host for the silvery checker spot butterfly. And they provide late seasonal forage, again, uh, for monarchs. So a great late season nectar source for monarch butterflies. It also provides nectar for bumblebees, sweat bees, and long-horned bees. So in short, uh, this plant is a bee paradise. Maximilian sunflower, uh, like a lot of our native sunflowers, can be a bit aggressive. So you will want to plant it with that mindset Perhaps you will want to make an island bed uh, in the center of your turf grass somewhere, or perhaps you'll grow it in a whiskey barrel, or in some other sense, grow it in an isolated and or monitored sort of situation. Sawtooth sunflower. Um, this was great. We actually went on a hike to Little Salt Fork Marsh Preserve with Drew Granville. And we actually got to see sawtooth sunflower growing wild in the prairie area there with Indian grass. And it was just wonderful. Uh, so if you have not been out there or you were not a part of our hike, um, you can go visit that area. It's called Little Salt Fork Marsh Preserve. And it's in Raymond, Nebraska, which is very close to Lincoln, Nebraska. But sawtooth sunflower, it's a tall plant, and how it looks is it's got these, you know, majestic yellow sunflowers with large green leaves. It's, it's got a colony-forming growth habit. It gets up to about six feet tall. 
So this might be a good candidate if, if you've got a large property and, and you want to make a thicket of, of tall sunflowers somewhere, or perhaps, you know, you live in a suburban garden and, and you want to do something similar to what I suggested for Maximilian sunflower. Maybe you've got some old whiskey barrels that you're going to fill up with soil and you're thinking of throwing something in. Maybe throw in some sawtooth sunflower and see how you like growing those. They are a perennial sunflower. Um, I'm not sure how they will overwinter in pots, but it's something I am really wanting to experiment with myself. Another native sunflower, western sunflower. This one looks more similar to false sunflower. Uh, it's got delicate yellow daisy shaped blooms. It only grows up to three feet tall in comparison to some of those other sunflowers. And it blooms from July to September. Jerusalem artichoke. Um, Bob and I had fun talking about this one a few different times. This is a native sunflower with edible tubers. So if that intrigues you, go back and listen to our native edible plant series. Um, it is aggressive, like, you know, some of these native sunflowers we've talked about have aggressive growth habits where they will spread uh, by rhizome. But we do like to talk about its usefulness for its edible tubers um, and its usefulness, uh, you know, as a bee favorite. A lot of sunflowers are favorites of bees, not to mention that birds love to eat the seeds. So even if this is something that we need to grow with a little more care, it's maybe something you should try if you feel like experimenting. Wild petunia is another great native plant. Um, petunias are always popular in garden centers, but lo and behold, we actually have a native wild type petunia. So this plant is a larval host plant for the common buckeye butterfly. It provides pollen for green sweat bees and seraphid flies. It provides nectar and pollen for leaf cutter bees. This flower, the flower itself is very delicate. It blooms off and on in my front garden. And I think it works perfect as an understory plant beneath all your other taller garden prairie style plants. So a really good one to work in as a filler. Common ironweed. Um, if you haven't already seen ironweed, it's a very intriguing plant from its bright purple color that seems to be rare in nature around these parts. Um, it is a larval host plant for the Parthenus tiger moth. It caters to specialist longhorned bees. So this is a plant that caters to a specific specialist in your garden. So you can brag that you're feeding specialists by growing it. It provides nectar for the Pex skipper and eastern tiger swallowtail. So if you're trying to attract swallowtails, this might be a great one. It's got beautiful, vibrant purple blooms that you will know anywhere. And it's great for a moister area of the garden, say the bottom of a hill or other some sort of depression or low spot you got going on. Another great plant family we could get into, and you're probably, you're probably already in the know about it a little bit, is the goldenrod family. So goldenrods are our state flower in the respect of all things patriotic to the state of Nebraska, we can spend some time talking about goldenrods. So there's different varieties. There is stiff goldenrod, which is a big buffet for diverse insect friends in the garden. This 
takes care of a lot of insects in a myriad of ways. So it is the larval host plant for the dart moth. It's a plant that caters to the specialist Andrina mining bees we noted before. It provides nectar for longhorn bees, sweat bees, bumblebees, leafcutter bees, paper wasps, golden digger wasps, monarchs, seraphid flies, you name it, it feeds it. Also provides pollen for the locust borer beetle. I need to look that one up because it sounds scary and cool at the same time. So I got to see what that guy's all about. Another great goldenrod for your garden that I recommend to people all the time is zigzag goldenrod. It feeds hordes of varied bugs. It's the larval host for the brown hooded owlet moth and twirler moth. Yes, there is a moth called a twirler moth and I want it to be my friend. It caters to the specialist Andrina mining bees. So another great one for those sweet little bees. It's got nectar for sweat bees, yellow-faced bees, bumblebees, carrot wasps, mason wasps, paper wasps, seraphid flies again, like this one. It's a great goldenrod for dappled light areas, so it's going to be able to tolerate some light shade, which is, is something you wouldn't think about goldenrods, but it is the case with some of these varieties. Canada goldenrod. It's a stout goldenrod. And it is an aggressive spreader, so this is perfect for wild spaces or in an area you can let it grow into a nice patch, an area you can monitor and maintain and cull down if you need to. It provides late season nectar forage, which is always a great thing for us environmentalists who want to provide habitat. And it can be a great rain garden addition. So if you are thinking of making a rain garden, this is one that's really going to be able to tolerate that sort of environment. Would look great right next to some obedient plant and swamp milkweed. Uh, Missouri goldenrod also looks like goldenrod. So if you're thinking to yourself, what does Missouri goldenrod look like? Well, it looks like goldenrod. The growth habit is three feet or so. It's a little bit floppy. It's early blooming. Um, this one might need a little bit of support or just make sure to plant things around it that will help hold it in place. Showy goldenrod. This is a nice, gorgeous specimen, true to its name. It's not too bad on flopping. Its growth habit is up to five feet and it provides late season nectar forage. Uh, go and look this one up, showy goldenrod. If you don't already have that in your garden, you definitely, definitely should. And another thing I should mention about goldenrod is that I am in the process of researching and studying up on how to use native plants for dyeing, for actually making native, natural, organic dyes to dye clothing and fabric and all sorts of other fun things with. So just know that goldenrod is a perfect candidate for natural dyeing because it makes a very vibrant yellow color. Sneezeweed is one we could talk about. Um, it sounds like a horrible plant when you say sneezeweed. Um, the Latin is Helanium autumnale, and it's just a cheerful little buttery yellow daisy-shaped flower, and it grows in a little bushy sort of habit and it's just covered profusely with these little sweet flowers and it's just a great plant this is one that that likes a little more moisture but also likes it sunny so if you've got a downspout 
um, that's in full sun, or you've got an area where water drains, but you know, it's not a shady area. It's a place that gets lots and lots of sun. This plant is going to be really, really happy there, and you will be really super glad you included it. I guess we could talk about all the different milkweeds. I know that people who usually hear about common milkweed or they hear about butterfly milkweed, which we are going to talk about, but there are also different kinds of milkweed you can use in the garden. And a lot of milkweed is blooming right now or at a certain period of the late summer or fall. So butterfly milkweed is a diverse pollinator parfait, if you will. It's got a rare bright orange. It looks amazing next to our purple, yellow, and light pink native flowers we have growing in our garden. It's a host plant for the monarch, the queen butterfly, and even the milkweed tussock moth. It provides nectar for the great spangled fritillary and sulfur butterflies. It provides nectar for paper wasps, ants, and even soldier beetles. So set your picnic up right next to some blooming butterfly weed and they'll leave your sandwiches alone. Ah, oh, isn't nature cool? Another milkweed we can talk about is world milkweed. It has delicate, similar to white orchid-shaped uh, flowers. Its leaves turn yellow in fall. Its growth habit, you could say it's an opportunist. So this one's going to cheerfully spread itself around your other plants, but it only grows to about a foot tall. So this is another one that's a filler plant. Um, will look great pretty much next to anything. It's really inconspicuous until it blooms, and even then you might miss it but the wasps will not. Uh, wasps dig this plant. So if you were terrified of wasps, you might not want to plant it, but wasps are not out to get you. Um, so don't let that be a deterrent. False sunflower. So false sunflower, true to its name, is not an actual sunflower. It is very similar though. It's the larval host for the rigid sunflower borer. Nectar source for ground beetles, soldier beetles, leafcutter bees, longhorn bees, clear-winged moths. It provides pollen for green sweat bees and carpenter bees. It even gives plant material for female leafcutter bees. So if you see a little leafcutter bee making a home in a little bee house that you've made, it might have been getting these materials from false sunflower. Good to know. Um, honestly, you don't need any more reasons to plant fall sunflower. It's got fall interest, lots of pollinator benefit. It's fantastic, prolifically blooming, cheerful yellow flowers. It's just an amazing plant. And once you see it, um, you'll have to have it in your garden. It's one of those. Verbena stricta. This one scares people because it's a prolific self-seeder. Um, but I think in the right place, this is an amazing plant. I grew this in my front garden and I absolutely loved it until I started battling all the seeds it put out into my little walking paths. Um, so I've rid it from my front garden, but that being said, I found lots of spaces in my back garden where it makes more sense, where it's not right next to a path that I'm going to have to constantly weed. Um, so this would be great for like a back border where you're mowing alongside it or an area that's just allowed to be a little wilder and you're not worried about it seeding itself around and making a, a decent sized patch. Verbena stricta, plant this and bestow favor on butterflies and bees. 
It's a larval host for the verbena moth and the fine-lined sallow moth, which I actually hadn't heard of until I prepared for today's episode. It caters to specialist bee Calliopsis nebraskensis. That's a tongue twister, nebraskensis. Say that 10 times fast. Nectar for peck skipper, silver spotted skipper, painted ladies, and monarchs. So if you like seeing the painted ladies, oh, I miss them. Where are they this year? I feel like I haven't seen a whole lot. If you want to try to, oh, you know what? Maybe I haven't seen a whole lot because I removed the verbena from my front garden. Shame on me. That's why I haven't seen them. It's a good verbena for drier places. Um, we've talked about being careful where you place it because it can go freely to seed. Another verbena for moist spots is verbena hostata. Um, this is just a really sweet version of verbena stricta. That's just how I think of it. I just think of it as this sweet little baby version where the flowers are just so like almost stunted, but like in such a cute, adorable little way. You're like, oh my gosh, like it's so tiny. The, the flowers are just so sweet looking. This plant is the host plant also for the verbena moth, and it feeds a variety of insects. Um, it still caters to that specialist bee, Calliopsis nebraskensis, which is also known as the Nebraska vervain Calliopsis bee. Uh, nectar provided for syrphid flies, bee flies, thick-headed flies. Ooh, flies like this one. That's interesting. It provides nectar for lots of bees, like the other ones we've talked about. So we're talking about green sweat bees, carpenter bees, bumblebees, longed horned bees, leaf cutter bees. And this is just a great plant for a rain garden uh, near a downspout, like we've mentioned. Just, oh, just the flowers are so great. They're so small and precious. You'll love them. Rattlesnake Master, this one's a unique plant. You might hate it first, um, but it is so unusual and tall and striking, like, like my husband. Oof, he might not like that joke. This one is a host plant for the stem borer moth, the flower feeding moth. It provides nectar for soldier beetles. Red-shouldered pine beetles, say that 10 times fast. Uh, gives nectar for yellow-faced bees, pollen for bumblebees, and is a wasp paradise. So again, if you want to push yourself to get over your irrational aversion and, and fear of wasps, this is one that, that might inspire some real personal growth. Um, there's a beautiful photo I love that shows a beautiful meadow garden of rattlesnake master tucked into false sunflower, pale purple coneflower, liatris, and wild bergamot. It's amazing. Uh, if you plant all those things together, you won't be disappointed. Uh, you may quit your job and never go back inside, uh, but don't blame me. Pitcher sage. Uh, you, you could call this blue sage. Sometimes I've heard people refer to it as the, the native blue sage. Pitcher sage, uh, salvia azuria. It looks pale bluish purple, sometimes, depending on the natural variation, um, looks more blue or looks more purple in some people's gardens. Uh, the growth habit, it's tall. You're going to want to place this one accordingly. Are you going to want to put this on, on the very edge of the border, right in the front? No. You're going to want to put it in the back. You're going to want to put it in the middle. You're going to want to put shrubby stuff all around it or, you know, something tall that's also structural um, 
or you're gonna have to stake this one. Just as long as you know that, you will love this plant. It's gonna get very tall and it's gonna to wanna to flap over, so you gotta plan accordingly. This stuff is used to growing in the prairie with, with tall grass. So that's why it is the way it is. So if you plant this one, you know, in a little native meadowscape style garden and you've got Indian grass and you've got some little blue stem and you've got some blue shrubby baptisia and stuff like that, this is going to be really, really happy. Um, it is the host plant for the hermit sphinx moth. Uh, if you haven't already seen what sphinx moths look like, you will want to go look up some pictures of these insects. They are really, really cool. Um, this one hosts the hermit sphinx moth, and that will be in the show notes. Uh, other great things about this plant, it's drought tolerant, it's aromatic, it's lovely, paired with yellow, it's a bee favorite. It's, it's just a great plant. And also uh, makes very good amounts of seeds. So if, if you're into seed saving, harvest those babies up, because if you don't, they're just going to come up as seedlings next year anyway. Um, the mint family. We could talk about some native plants in the mint family. Anise hyssop. Uh, this is a late season nectar source. It provides nectar for the silver spotted skipper, the great spangled fritillary. Um, it's a great plant. It smells like licorice. Um, some people don't like that. And I just, I, you know, if you don't like it, I can't be friends with you. I, I'm worried about you. Like, are you okay? I don't know. It's just, it's an awesome plant, and I don't understand why people don't like the way it smells. But, you know, to each his own. It has a stately structured appearance in the late summer and early fall garden. This one is just a really nice structural anchor for the rest of your fall garden. So if you don't already have any hyssop somewhere, this one is structured enough where you actually can grow it on an edge, depending on how far away it is from the edge. You got to have this one like, you know, a good two or so feet in from the edge. Uh, it looks great, you know, kind of like towards the, not like the inner, inner middle, but like sort of towards the middle. You could grow it there. Virginia Mountain Mint is another one in the mint family that's really great. It's a great plant for your rain garden, wetter spots on your property. Uh, per perhaps you got a downspout uh, area we talked about before. You know, maybe you got a weird patio like mine where it just dumps all of its water in one direction after it rains. Put, put your Virginia Mountain Mint there. It'll do just fine. This is a wasp favorite. Again, I know I'm, I'm giving all you scaredy wasp people out there PTSD, but um, you can make a sea shanty album called Wasp's Friend and play it for yourself while staring at Virginia Mountain Mint. It'll be great. Nectar for long-horned bees, green sweat bees, yellow-faced bees, bumblebees. We've heard about these bees a lot. These bees like a lot of these fall flowers. It provides nectar for the banded hair streak butterfly which um, not only sounds cool, but also looks cool and is cool. Um, it provides nectar for paper wasps, great golden digger wasps, great black wasps, and bee wolves. Did you know that bee wolves are a thing? Because I didn't. Um, but I googled a picture of one of them carrying a bee in their arms, and it's awakened the stuff of nightmares. So contribute to scary, amazing, and wonderful biodiversity by planting Virginia Mountain Mint. 
Um, maybe give your sinister daughter a reason to haunt the garden. Oh, wait, that's my daughter. <laughs> uh, wild bergamot. It's the host plant for the hermit sphinx moth, like we've talked about before with another plant. Um, it also caters to the specialist black sweat bee. It provides nectar for the eastern tiger swallowtail, the monarch, a silver-spotted skipper, uh, and the hummingbird clearwing moth, which I always love seeing that one when it's around. Um, wild bergamot was featured on our episode about wildflower tea, so go back and listen to that one if you haven't already. Um, this one's just really fantastic in bloom. Um, there's really not much better out there in terms of just really unique, powerful color, uh, great growth habit, and also utility. You can, you can forage this one and make wildflower teas. Um, spotted bee balm. This one is a wasp's paradise. Um, it's a host plant for the gray marvel moth. It's a plant that caters to the specialist black sweat bee. Uh, provides nectar for tons of other insects, some of the same ones we've been talking about before. Great black and gold digger wasps, uh, long-horned bees and bumblebees. This plant surprised my friend who has been gardening for many years. Um, she is a gorgeous cottage style garden and if she loves it, I, I promise you that you will too. Uh, On to grasses, because Sometimes we are guilty, those of us that, that love flowers and, and love nature, to not love grasses enough. So I am encouraging you, if you are like me and you want flowers, flowers everywhere all the time, um, be open-minded when it comes to grasses, because actually grasses are an understated beauty. Um, purple love grass. This one is going to blow people away who haven't already seen it already. It just looks like beautiful purple smoke. Um, and even after that, just looks like beautiful golden smoke. So just a really ethereal, fun sort of plant. It's, it's, it's low growing, it's short, it's wispy. Um, I've grown this really, really well in my hell strip garden. Um, and I've heard it, it works well in other stubborn dry areas. So give this one a try if you haven't already. Uh, prairie drop seed, looks like a big friendly green tuft of grass and it's it's a bunch forming grass it's only going to get about two three feet tall birds like eating the seeds it's a good source of fall color as cold sets in uh, this is a versatile grass it's going to grow in a nice variety of areas for you so prairie drop seed a good one to plant in drifts and be a part of your native or pollinator garden cytos grama um, true to its name, it looks like rolled oats on a blade of grass. It's got teeny tiny red flowers. Uh, play a game with yourself and see if you can spot them. It's got an open growth habit. Uh, it grows up to or so feet tall. Uh, it's a larval host for skippers. And it's, it's just another great grass for dry spaces. Not that we're short on those in Nebraska. Blue grama. Um, this is another great plant you can grow. It's a little bit different from Cytos grama. Uh, blue grama, it's interesting. I actually uh, just recently got into seed starting a little bit more. And this was one that germinated really well for me. I did like a whole flat of blue grama 
and I did a whole flat of little blue stem and they both germinated really, really well. So I'd recommend this one to kind of compare against the other grama grasses, but also to just know that like this one, you can harvest seed from your own garden and just re-sow it in flats and, and just reproduce a bunch and make a ton to plant around. And also blue grama is one of those uh, grasses that's recommended for hillsides where you have trouble growing other things. Uh, it forms a nice mat and it, it helps protect against erosion. So this might be one to use um, on a hillside garden or in other tough dry places like we've been talking about. Little blue stem. Um, this one just, ugh, it's a beautiful kaleidoscope of blues and purples and reds and copper tones. It, just really depends. There's so much natural variation sometimes in little blue stem, which I'm guessing is how they're able to make all these kind of fun, crazy cultivars of them. Um, its growth habit is, you know, it's about three feet tall, sometimes can be a scotch taller if it's really happy. Um, you know, can, can flop a little bit, can be a flopper. I like growing this, you know, on a corner somewhere where it can kind of just casually and luxuriously drape over a little bit. Um, I just think it's it's just really aesthetic and just really lovely. So I like having it where I can see it. It's a larval host plant for skippers and birds like to eat the seeds. Uh, it's our official state grass. So again, if we're trying to be patriotic, um, we should we should definitely grow some little blue stem in our gardens. Uh, big blue stem, this one is uh, just you know, it's not used often because people see the height, you know, these babies get up to like eight feet tall. Um, and, and I was talking to you about Little Salt Fork Marsh Preserve. Say that 10 times fast. We were out there and, you know, we were looking at the sawtooth sunflower and there was the pitcher sage and there's Indian grass and there's big blue stem and there's, you know, there's other things like Gora, um, but the big blue stem, it's just, oh, I wish people would give it a chance and really think of their gardens in terms of like, okay, where could I grow big blue stem? Like, where could I have a taller grass and, and be okay with it? Cause it's got these amazing purplish red tips. It's just, oh, it looked like heaven with, with that. Oh, we went on a sunny day and there was the Indian grass. And, oh, it's just, it was just, oh, to die for. It was so beautiful. Uh, another good thing to note is that big blue stem is a very important part of tall grass prairie ecosystems. So if you are really trying to do your part, reintroducing these important prairie plants somewhere because they are being eradicated so quickly elsewhere, give this one a chance. Maybe find a back sunny corner of your garden or um, an area where it's, it's kind of in the midst of everything where something could be a bit taller and just give it a chance. Or perhaps, you know, you're planning your micro prairie or whatnot, add this in there. It's, it's gonna be tall, but it's gonna be okay. And you're gonna fall in love with it like I've fallen in love with it. It's gonna be all right, it's gonna be okay. Uh, another tall grass to try Switchgrass, um, this one's gonna be more in the four, five foot height. Just a great looking grass, another important grass to tall grass prairie ecosystems. Um, definitely look into that one. There's a fancy cultivar of this one called Heavy Metal. 
Um, and, you know, you can make up your mind what you will about the cultivars and, and decide whether you think it's ethical or not to use them. Um, but just the standard native switchgrass, it, it's a good looking grass. It's fun. Um, it's got, you know, cute little seed heads on it. Um, try it out. See what you think. Uh, Indian grass. We've talked about this one a lot. Um, the, it's got bronze and gold colored seed heads. It's, it's really majestic in mass. It's, it's a taller one. So this is going to be six feet or more. It provides food for birds. Just, it just looks awesome. I wish I would have given this one a chance before. Uh, I'm really glad that I'm growing it now. I'm actually like a crazy lady growing it in the middle of my hillside and it's doing really, really well. So my goal is to kind of surround it with with like some medium height sorts of things. I've got like some spotted bee balm in there um, and I've got like some mountain mint and I've even got like some butterfly weed, you know, kind of on the edges and, and I've got different things around it and it, it just looks great. Um, I don't regret planting it at all. I've got some Western yarrow in there. So, I mean, the goal, I think, for me is just, you know, I've got this Indian grass in the middle, and I'm going to plant, you know, some three, four, you know, feet tall things around it and and see how it goes, you know. Um, maybe add some other structural things, you know, on more level ground. Like, I can add in a little obelisk and you know grow some sort of native vine up it or you know even just like a a u.s native honeysuckle vine or something like that to kind of uh to make the tall indian grass feel more at home with other semi-tall things around it but i think that's today's talk sometimes we get to the end of the summer and we're like well that's it and it's it's not it, actually. There's there's a lot that can be going on, and it doesn't have to be chrysanthemums and, you know, ornamental gourds and things. Um, there are a lot of native wildflowers. There's a lot of native grasses that fall is their time to shine. It is their time. Like, go go down to Laritzen Gardens right now, and, and I bet you anything, a lot of what is standing out right now is grasses and I'd imagine a good handful of them are either native grasses or they're cultivars of native grasses. Um, so don't uh, don't sell yourself short and definitely make sure you utilize some of these plants because you know a successful garden is as much about you know the variety and the diversity of what you're planting in it as much as it is like the execution of planning it out or planting it well or staying on top of weeding it or, or that sort of thing. Like it's also about what you are actually putting in because we want a multi-season garden. We want to be providing habitat year round. At the end of the fall, some people cut things all the way back to the ground and they leave everything bare all through winter. That wouldn't be very friendly to the insects that like to make homes in the stems of our wildflowers. You know, think about some different plants you can incorporate for fall interest. It provides beauty for you. It provides a longer lasting aesthetic appeal for you. Um, but it also provides 
late season nectar sources, uh, late season pollen sources, um, and also be kind of looking ahead to planning out how you are also going to, to leave some of this plant material so that insects can make homes um, and survive what's, what sounds like it's going to be a pretty harsh winter this year. There's, if there's things that are really unruly um, or that, that look really, you know, kind of sickly or bad or just unpleasant to you, just go ahead and cut those back. If, if you got to cut them pretty harshly down, you know, if, if you're just wanting to cut off seed heads um, so that you don't have to weed out so many native plant volunteers from your garden, just cut the seed heads off and, and just leave the stems because they're going to be able to provide nice little insect homes for our little, our little friends. So just be thinking ahead and be conscious of how your mindset about fall and and winter landscapes what that mindset suggests they should look like or what they should be and just I guess I'm encouraging you to have a wilder imagination of what a fall or a winter garden can look like and to be open-minded to trying new things and doing new things it's something that I can recommend to you because I myself am, am trying new things and and trying to be more open-minded. Um, that is my TED Talk for today. And again, if anything intrigues you about today's episode, definitely take a look at our show notes and give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts if you're able to. We are we are now on the Apple Podcast app, which is great because that has been a long time coming. As always, thank you so very much for listening, and we are glad that we can share this native plant space with you. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. If you need notes on anything mentioned in today's episode, check our website, plant-native-nebraska.captivate.fm for more info. I want you to know you've made this podcast special just by listening in, but if you found real value in today's talk, You can both financially support future episodes and dive deeper into the topics we share by finding us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash plant native Nebraska. Thanks for listening. I also wanted to put out a special call to action to our listeners to assist at the pollinator plantings at Mason Park in Bellevue. You can visit the Bellevue Native Plant Society webpage at bellevuenativeplants.org Click on the Local Volunteers Needed tab and scroll down to see all of our workdays. See you there, and as always, thanks for listening.